This series is still in production. So if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. You're listening to episode three of Gunplot. I'm Ronan Kelly, and together with my colleague Nicolene Greer and the RTE Documentary on One team, we are unpicking the stories that make up one of the biggest political scandals Ireland has ever seen, the arms crisis of 1970. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot, and available on the RTE player. So this episode is from 1969, and it runs from September to early October. In this period, a few new characters come into the story, and one really significant event. A meeting in County Cavan that threatened to ground the whole clandestine plan before it even took off. Remember at the beginning of episode one, we heard about the anonymous note being brought to the office of the leader of the Irish government, the Taoiseach? The note talked about a plot to bring guns into Ireland illegally. Well, in this episode, that so-called plot starts to come together. But by the end of the episode, the secret plan looks like it's coming apart, under threat of being brought down by other state actors waiting in the wings. We begin this episode with a bizarre scene at Dublin Airport. It involves guns being brought into Ireland illegally. Now, this is not the importation that's mentioned in the note, but we're bringing you into this scene because it lets us do two things. First, it'll allow us to introduce a new person into the story, a man whose name was on the anonymous note at the beginning of episode one, and his name was Charles Hahi. The other thing this unusual scene is going to do is allow us to explain something really important about the organisation that could end up getting guns coming into the country, and that's the IRA. Because while now, in September 1969, there's one IRA, by the end of the year, the organisation will split and there'll be two IRAs. A real headache for anyone trying to decide who to give guns to for the North. One last thing, as well as two IRAs, In this episode, there are two Kellys, two men with the same surname, Kelly. It was bound to happen. Kelly is a very common surname in Ireland, and it could be confusing. But we're going to be as clear as possible about which Kelly you're hearing about at any one time. So, let's start with the scene at Dublin Airport. It's September 1969, and as we said... It's an extraordinary sight. It's almost comical if it hadn't such a serious context. A small pickup truck is driving along. It's moving erratically. As one of the men in the truck described it later, swaying from side to side. The reason is that the lorry is too small for the load it's carrying, which is boxes of guns that have just been flown into the country. 
Despite the erratic driving, the truck and its load have been waved through customs and out of the airport. The guns in the boxes were for the IRA. Two of the three men in the van were IRA men. The third was a Dublin businessman named Jock Hockey, the brother of this man. As a community, we have been living beyond our means. Charles Hockey. This situation must be got under control. And it can be got under control. So this is Charles Hockey, Irish Minister for Finance back in 1969. Of living within our means. And whose brother Jock was in the lorry ferrying guns for the IRA. In our view, it is wrong in principle to afford to Britain sovereignty over any part of this country. That is our constitutional position. You'll remember from the end of episode two that Charles Hockey was one of the two ministers who had control over the £100,000 fund that the Irish government had sanctioned to be spent on the vague brief of relief of distress in the North. And being Minister for Finance gave Charles Hockey more than one connection to this scene with the too small lorry in Dublin Airport. Not only was he the brother of one of the men in the lorry, but he was also the boss of the men who waved it through. Because the Minister for Finance has responsibility for customs, and they were the ones who let Jock Hockey and his lorry overloaded with guns pass through, whether they knew what the cargo was or not. Jock Hockey was in that lorry because he felt so strongly about what was happening in the north at that time, according to his daughter, Kiva. The hardship that we were seeing of our families up in the north and the suffering and nothing being done about it. Our family, our relatives are suffering up in the north. We need to do something about it. This was a, a collective coming together of people saying they need help. You know, Families, young mothers, fathers, children, they need help up the north. What can we do about it? And yes, there were certain people in certain positions who were able to do more than others. And two of those certain people were Kiva's father, Jock, and his brother, Charles, the Minister for Finance. And when Kiva talks about our relatives in the north, she is speaking metaphorically, but also literally, because the Hahi family came from the north. That's where... Granny Hawhey and Grandad Johnny were from. They were from Derry. Granny Sarah Ann and Grandad Johnny had both fought against the British in Derry during the Irish War of Independence. And when Charles and Jock were children, they regularly visited their relations back in Derry. My father spent his school holidays with his aunts and uncles in Derry. So he was very familiar with life in Northern Ireland from a very early age and he would have witnessed sectarianism. Charles Hockey's son, Sean, said that he came face-to-face with the hated B-specials. There's a story told that he was on a train once going on his summer holidays and was boarded by the B-specials and that he was put off the train. So, like a lot of people in the country, he was very concerned about the flare-up of violence in 1969. But 1969 provided Charles Hockey with other, happier memories. He got re-elected in that year's general election and he moved into a very grand new home. In fact, you could say that he got elected in spite of the fact that he had just got himself a huge new home. Because during the election campaign, questions were asked about how a man who came from very modest circumstances and with only a minister's salary as income could be so wealthy. I don't want to say any more about it. 
At this election press conference, Charles Hawhey was asked about politicians benefiting from rezoning. He had just made a lot of money on reselling his family home on land that had been rezoned for development. I resent very much my private and personal career as being subject of a political campaign. If, if this is to be so, then let us look at everybody's personal but not everybody's personal finances were as spectacularly interesting as Charles Hawhey's. It later emerged that his good run of accruing wealth began when he bought a house on 45 acres in the Dublin suburbs as part of a deal with a property developer. When the 45 acres was rezoned for housing, Hawhey sold the property to the developer for £200,000, about €3 million Euros in today's money. Not only that, in a cool stroke, he avoided tax on the sale because of changes he had brought in as Minister for Finance. With the £200,000, Hawhey then bought a stud farm in County Meath, as well as a mansion on 250 acres just outside Dublin. Well, Gandon, of course, built this house. and as I understand, He did a tour of the house for a TV crew looking every bit the country gentleman. In fact, later, people would disparagingly refer to him as Squire Hawhey. As I understand the story, apparently he was so taken with this room, we call it the Malton Room now, that he preserved it in its entirety, even though it was a much earlier form of architecture, and he built the rest of his Georgian house around this older room. And his mansion wasn't just a family home. It was an impressive second office for Hawhey, where he could entertain guests and hold discreet meetings. One such meeting took place in the autumn of 1969. It was between Charles Hawhey, Captain Kelly, the Irish Army intelligence officer, and his superior officer, Colonel Hefferin. Captain Kelly, as you know, had been ordered to travel around the north, making contact with groups defending the Catholic areas the so-called defence committees. I was an intelligence officer meeting people, talking to them, finding out what they wanted. And he'd been talking to these defence committees, each in their different areas. But then, in September 1969, it was decided that something more coordinated was needed. And Captain Kelly invited all the defence committees to come together and meet in one place. But Captain Kelly didn't make that decision on his own. By now, he was having weekly meetings with a man we met in episode two, the Minister for Agriculture, Neil Blaney. That there's not a Blaney that differs from me in outlook here for all You'll remember Neil Blaney also had access to the £100,000 and was also mentioned on the anonymous note. Neil Blaney even called Captain Kelly, my wee man. But here we have to pause and draw your attention to something that keeps cropping up in this story the very odd connections between people. Minister Neil Blaney was meeting with Captain Kelly every week. Think about that. What was the Minister for Agriculture doing meeting with a junior army officer? The army is, after all, about hierarchy and chains of command. Surely it's the top officers who meet with government ministers. And surely those meetings should be with the Minister for Defence and not the Minister for Agriculture. Well, one partial explanation for this is that the Office of Army Intelligence had its own regular meetings with the Minister for Defence. 
and the director of Army Intelligence, Colonel Heffron, had decided that a member of his staff, Captain Kelly, could communicate directly with government ministers, and Captain Kelly reported back on those meetings to Colonel Heffron. But why the Minister for Agriculture? Well, again, one explanation is that the minister, Neil Blaney, had such a forceful personality. As his son Eamon says, He was a very determined, very loud, driven, I would say, a man of great conviction. And at the end of August 1969, this determined man, Neil Blaney, and his cabinet colleague, Minister Charles Hawhey, found out that the army had an intelligence officer who had developed contacts in the north, and they decided to use him. That's three of the names on the anonymous note right there. Blaney, Hawhey, and Captain Kelly. And also three of the men who ended up in court over a year later. It would refer to Mr. Hawhey, I would imagine. This is Captain Kelly being cross-examined about Mr. Hawhey at the arms trial. A fine okay from Mr. Hawhey. A final okay. I asked for instructions and I said, ask the boss man, which was Mr. Hawhey. Another strange thing is that this arrangement, Captain Kelly working with ministers Hawhey and Blaney, wasn't formally decided upon. There's no record of it at Cabinet. And because there was no written decision, this meant that while some Cabinet ministers say they knew all about Captain Kelly from the word go, others denied it. Which prompts the question, were Charles Hawhey and Neil Blaney, as they were accused later, running a government within a government? Or were they operating to a secret government policy that was then denied when the anonymous note was delivered? While we're on questions, one last one. Why did Neil Blaney and Charles Hawhey need Captain Kelly at all? Well, one answer to that question lies in that earlier unrelated attempt to import arms. The truck weaving its way out of Dublin Airport with Charles Hawhey's brother Jock on board. You would assume that given what was happening in the North and the Citizens' Defence Committees crying out for guns, those guns Jock Hawhey brought in would be going straight across the border to help Catholics defend themselves against rising threats and violence. But no. Jock and the two IRA men in the truck rendezvoused with a group from the Dublin IRA who unloaded the boxes, divided the contents and delivered them to various arms dumps. And there they stayed. Neither the Northern IRA nor the Citizens' Defence Committees ever saw them. And that's because there was friction between the IRA in the South and the IRA in the North. The IRA in the South was focused on changing Irish society and bringing down the government in Dublin. Whereas in the North, some of the IRA people were more concerned with the immediate threat to Catholic families. And that was a worry for anyone connected to the government in Dublin who wanted to bring in arms for the North. How to make sure they went into the right hands. That is, the hands of those who would only use those guns to defend Catholics in the North and not use them to attack the South. One IRA man from the North saw this face-to-face when he came south to lobby the Irish government for guns. I think their big concern would, would have been to ensure that the people to whom they were giving the arms were not going to use them offensively at a later stage against themselves. You know. This is the other Kelly we were telling you about. His name was John Kelly, no relation to Captain Kelly. This man, John Kelly, was a senior member of the IRA and in this interview for RTE television in the 1990s, he explains why his namesake became so valuable. He was there to suss out who would be the people more likely not to alienate the Irish government. Captain Kelly's job was to vet people, 
and that was why Charles Hahi and Neil Blaney needed him. This is the late Captain Kelly speaking in 1990. Most of the people I met were not subversive, but at that stage there were citizens representing people who were under attack or felt that they might be under attack in the six counties. As Captain Kelly said himself later, why would we in the South give guns to people who wanted to overthrow us? By we, he meant the Irish government. And in his travels up north, that's who Captain Kelly had been given licence to tell people he was, representing part of the Irish government. For example, when he was here in the Bogside in Derry, he called into the home of civil rights activist Eamon McCann. Well, I can remember my mother coming up and waking me and saying, there's a man downstairs who wants to see him. And I came to discover a man in the kitchen. My mother brought him in, he was having a cup of tea. He introduced himself as a represent. I forget the, the phrase that he used, but he introduced himself as representing the Dublin government. At the time when I was talking to Captain Kelly in our kitchen in Garton Square, I can't remember us having any deep or indeed any political conversation about where this was leading to or what the implications of it were for the immediate future. No. The immediate future was not looking good in the North. Throughout September 1969, the mob violence and shootings continued, especially in Belfast. The ninth man to die in the North's current wave of violence met his death on the pavement of a narrow street of red brick houses between half past four and five o'clock this morning. He was, as you've heard, a Protestant, a 23-year-old sheet metal worker employed by Ulster Bus, married... This man's name was Jack Todd, and he was killed as he was walking along the street with two other men. We think the shot that killed the young man came from the house directly opposite where he was found. Jack Todd was identifiable to the gunman as a Protestant because he was returning from a meeting with Catholic residents to discuss how each side would patrol their own areas to keep mob violence down. One of their young friends had been brutally and cold-bloodedly murdered. No one was charged with the killing of Jack Todd. That's all it can be put as murder. Jack Todd's killing was part of a pattern that was to endure for many years in the north of Ireland. People being killed because of where they were living or the streets they were walking down. He may have been killed in a deliberate attempt to defend by attack. So, a Catholic gunman thought he would defend his own area by shooting a random Protestant. If that was the case, it didn't work. Because in the following days, 19 Catholic families moved out of the street, making it wholly Protestant. Maybe it was inevitable that those families would have had to move out, but the presence of guns accelerated events and made them more unpredictable. Because of this, the Defence Committees not only asked for arms from the Irish government, they also wanted weapons training. Which is why, a few weeks later in Derry, there was a development involving the Irish Army. In late September 1969, a group of young Catholics had been brought from the bogside over the border into Donegal. They came here, to a windswept headland, right near the northern tip of Ireland. This was the Irish Army facility of Fort Dunry. And here, they were enlisted into the Irish Army Reserve and they were given weapons training. We were trained in CO3 and 3 One of those young men was the 19-year-old rioter we heard from in episode two. 
Hugh Doherty. The Browning 9mm pistol just off the machine gun and then the FM self-loading rifle. Do you remember the first time you fired a shot? On the range, yes. I do. It was a 303 and it had a hell of a thump. Did it? I do you hurt my shoulder for a week. As the sergeant said then, if it's hurting your shoulder, you're doing it wrong. And is the machine gun hard to hold steady? Because stuff, oh yeah, because when you press your trigger to that, it would normally empty a full mag within a matter of seconds. So you had to be able to control. You were told, like, you know, this boy kicks to the, kicks to the right, so you've got to hold it down to your left, etc. So when you think about it, here was the Irish Army training citizens of another country, ordinary people, how to use guns. And remember, Eamon McCann said there were only about five guns in the bogside where Hugh lived. So one reading of this operation was that it anticipated that these young men would be engaging in armed conflict and getting guns to do so. This is apropos a demand by representatives of the Defence Committees for training. And that was a point that would be made a year later, at the so-called arms trial of 1970. Because for this training to happen, it had to be sanctioned by the Minister for Defence, James Gibbons. As far as you were aware at that time, were the persons who were so trained... In this extract from the trial, one of the barristers, a man named Niall McCarthy, is reading out the record of Minister Jim Gibbons's testimony. And was the training arranged by the persons who formed the defence committees in Derry? And so, as I understood it, certain selected people... It's from a part where the Minister for Defence is talking about the reason he sanctioned the Fort Dunree training for the Derry men. And would you agree with me, Mr Gibbons, that it was pointless to train these men in the use of guns unless they were going to get guns? No, I would not agree with you in that. What was the point of training them in the use of guns if they were not going to get guns? I would think that my chief motivation in this gesture would be to convey to them that their dire straits were perceived by us and were sympathised with by us. But if training these men was a show of sympathy, the Irish Army training also did something else. It brought home to some of the young men what it would actually mean to pick up a gun. Did you want to get a weapon? You yourself? I can remember one sergeant saying very simply, you never pick up a weapon unless you intend to use it. You never point a weapon at anybody unless you intend to fire. You never fire at anybody unless you intend to kill them and not serve as a very sobering thought. So it's not that we wanted weapons. It was coming to the stage where we thought that we may, may well need them. Hugh Doherty's firearms training finished, but before time. The British satirical magazine Private Eye had got wind of the fact that the Irish Army was enrolling Derry civilians into the Irish Army Reserve and training them in firearms use. So Colonel Heffron, the Director of Army Intelligence, cancelled the training straight away and Hugh and his neighbours returned to the Bogside. But back in the Bogside, another offer of help came from Dublin. 
to a local activist and a member of the local defence committee. One day he got a call from the Irish Republic. On the other end of the line was the Irish Minister for Finance, Charles Hahi. After some pleasantries, Hahi said, You will need some money up there. How much do you need? The activist waited a moment. He knew his phone was tapped and he was amazed the Irish finance minister would make such an offer over an unsecure phone line. Before he could say anything, Charles Hahi said he would send 5,000. No, said the activist, 1,000 would be plenty. Next day, a banker came to the activist's store to tell him a sum of money had been deposited and that the bank awaited instructions. This story about Charles Hahi's flamboyant attitude to money for the North is not isolated. Remember that big get-together that Captain Kelly planned to hold with all the Northern Defence Committees? And Charles Hahi called Captain Kelly out to his mansion to discuss it? Then Charles Hahi asked Captain Kelly how much the meeting would cost. The meeting was to take place in a hotel. The Northern representatives would be travelling various distances so they'd need to be entertained. Captain Kelly reckoned he needed about £150. He said Charles Hahi gave him £500. So now, in early October 1969, less than two months after the Battle of the Bogside, Captain Kelly's meeting with Northern representatives was due to take place. This was a crucial time in the North. There were more riots, Protestant and Catholic churches were attacked, more British troops were drafted in, and in Belfast, so-called peace walls were built to separate Catholic and Protestant areas. On Monday, the corporation is to erect a much more permanent structure, an eight-foot-high steel barricade. Incidentally, the Northern Irish government said those walls would be temporary and not like the Berlin Wall. Nineteen police officers were injured in last night's clashes in Belfast. In 2021, those walls are still there. For a second consecutive night, the trouble was on both sides of a so-called peace line at Lanark Way, a metal security gate that divides loyalist and nationalist areas. An eight-foot-high steel barricade, which will even prevent Catholic and Protestant residents from ripping over into each other's territory. Back in September 1969, as those walls were just being built, the British government sent in 700 more troops, and the British media followed them to explain to the British public what was going on. It is a lunatic but sad fact that but for the British army, there would be civil war between Catholic and Protestant in this part of Britain. This is from a famous Thames television documentary on the British army in Belfast called Men in the Middle. Men in the Middle, keeping peace between two warring factions. But this time, it's not Aden, Cyprus or some far-off colony. It is incredibly in Britain's own backyard, Northern Ireland. Internationally, the British were playing tough. They were having regular diplomatic meetings with the Irish government at which they discussed the North. But when the Irish government tried to get the United Nations General Assembly to discuss the situation in Northern Ireland at the end of September, the British made sure the Irish failed. The Irish government also changed its own approach, at least in public. Remember Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach, made his We Will Not Stand By speech? which was interpreted as a threat to invade the North. Well, a few weeks later, he made an important speech in Tralee, County Kerry. For the restoration in some form of its national unity. In this speech, Jack Lynch said he didn't support violence as a means of achieving Irish unity. It has been the government's policy 
to seek the reunification of our country by peaceful means. Inspiring words indeed, but back up in Dublin, two of his ministers were talking to an army captain about holding a get-together with all the Northern Catholic Defence Committees about their needs. And as we know, one of their needs was for guns. And one thing many of them wanted was to get British rule out of Ireland. So what guarantee was there that they wouldn't use the guns for that purpose? Writing later, Captain Kelly himself described this October 1969 get-together as the genesis of the plan by members of the Irish state to bring in arms. But the meeting was also the beginning of moves to scupper that plan. Because when news of the meeting leaked out to the Gardaí, it set off alarm bells. Not with the regular Gardaí, but with the special branch. Remember how we heard in episode two that the minister responsible for policing in the Irish Republic told the Gardaí not to interfere with guns going across the border to defend Catholics? Well, not all the Gardaí agreed with that instruction. The Anti-Terrorism and National Security Section, or Special Branch, didn't. And when the head of the Garda Special Branch found out about Captain Kelly's planned meeting, he was horrified. His informers told him that an Irish army officer was planning to meet with the IRA. He went and reported to his boss, who at that time was in hospital in Dublin. His boss was a man named Peter Berry. That's a name to remember, because Peter Berry is one of the most fascinating people in this story. And he was one of the most powerful behind-the-scenes characters in Ireland of the late 1960s. He controlled the Garda Special Branch, but he wasn't a policeman. Peter Berry was actually a civil servant, admittedly the top civil servant in the Department of Justice, but a civil servant nonetheless. And because Peter Berry was responsible for the unit dealing with subversives, Peter Berry himself carried a gun. He had an armed guard outside his house and he was driven everywhere by a guard the driver. And Peter Berry, this civil servant, was firmly committed to his job and particularly dealing with the threat from the IRA. He was so committed that when he had to go into hospital in October 1969, he had special telephones with encryption devices installed by his bedside. Peter Berry was like the security supremo. Sean Boyne is a journalist who writes on security. Very much a law and order person, and he would not have tolerated in any way arms coming in to the country to be passed on to people whom he would have regarded as subversive. He was very anti-IRA, and if you look at his background, he joined the Department of Justice in 1927. That year, 1927, is important and may explain why Peter Berry was so firmly anti-IRA. In 1927, he was just 19, and his first job at the Department of Justice was to read racy books to see if they should be banned. But within months of him joining, the IRA carried out one of their most famous assassinations. They killed Peter Berry's own minister, the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins. And Kevin O'Higgins had been seen as strong on law and order and tough on the IRA. And that assassination must have had an impact on the 19-year-old civil servant, Peter Berry, according to historian Kira Meehan. 
he's a young man. He's still in the formative years, you could say, of him becoming an adult. And in terms of his political career, that's been forged in a period of discussions about the future of the state and the stability of the state. So that when everything played out in the early 1970s, he must have in some ways sort of felt a, a return to that discussions of the 1920s. I mean, that's the thing about Irish political history. It echoes continuously down through the decades. Down through those decades, in his 46 years in the Department of Justice, Peter Berry had gone through many ministers. One of his favourites was a young man whose first ministry was justice. That young man was Charles Hoy, And Peter Berry saw him put IRA men in jail during a previous IRA campaign. So when the head of the Garda Special Branch came to tell Peter Berry in his hospital bed that an Irish Army officer was going to meet with some IRA men, Peter Berry got onto one of his phones and frantically tried to get someone from the Irish government to do something about it. He eventually got his former minister, Charles Hohey, who agreed to come to the hospital to hear what Peter Berry had to say. Peter Berry told Hohey the alarming news about the army captain and the IRA. Hohey listened, but he didn't reveal that not only did he know about the meeting, but that he had actually given the captain money to pay for it. This is Charles Hawhey's son, Sean. Did your dad ever mention Peter Berry? No, 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 he never mentioned Peter Berry. Which is not a surprise. Famously, Charles Hawhey always refused to talk about the arms crisis. Different journalists were looking to interview him about the arms trial. Charles Hawhey's press secretary had the exact same reply for all of those types of requests from journalists. None of that arms trial is shite. He won't be discussing anything to do with that. So again, no. That arms trial shite started when, despite Peter Berry's efforts, the meeting between the army captain and the defence committees went ahead. The first thing to know about the meeting was that it had to be held in the Irish Republic because Captain Kelly had been told by his superior officer, Colonel Heffron, that he was no longer to travel over the border. Other Irish army intelligence officers had also been working in the north and one of them had been spotted by British authorities. So it was decided it was too risky to go there anymore. It was too dangerous. Captain Kelly's sister, Teresa. He used to call in on her on his way to and from the north. Yeah, I remember him calling on me. I lived in Cavan. Did you talk to him about what he was doing or did he say to you what he was doing? I felt that he was doing something that he'd been told to do and it was a little bit of a secret about it and not to say anything about it. OK. What did you think it was that he was doing? Well, I knew he was an intelligence officer. Mm -hmm. So I knew he was doing things, you know, and that he wasn't going to tell me everything anyway. The location chosen for the October meeting was Captain Kelly's hometown of Baileyborough, County Cavan, near the border with the north of Ireland. And did you recall that meeting in uh, Baileyborough that everybody talks about? I heard about it. I just heard that it happened, that it was part of the, the things Jim used to do. And while those who Captain Jim Kelly invited to his Baileyborough meeting did include IRA men, as Peter Berry feared, the meeting was ostensibly a get-together with representatives of all members of the Citizens' Defence Committees in the North. Just to recap what those committees were all about. Nationalists at that time felt that they were completely isolated. This is Brona Mulholland, the daughter of IRA man John Kelly, who you heard from earlier. 
He was on a Belfast defence committee. They were left completely defenceless. And I suppose then it was out of that that the citizens' defence committees were born. And like they were made up of, of the clergy. They were made up of doctors. There were businessmen. They were solicitors, lawyers, because they were there to help people in all facets and aspects of their lives, you know. The citizens' defence committees were, were not solely for defending people with violence. But Captain Kelly's reports from the Bailey Borough meeting did mention violence. I met representatives of the defence committees from Northern Ireland who came down to this meeting in Baileyborough on that particular Saturday, October the 4th. This is the late Captain Kelly speaking in 1995. And we had a long discussion and the purpose of my meeting them was to find out from them for what they really wanted arms if the government was going to give them arms, why they wanted arms. He said that the defence committees came to the meeting disappointed that the weapons training from the Irish Army had finished. They said they needed it because they were formulating plans to buy guns and they told them that all they needed was money. Captain Kelly told them that there was money available. But while making this offer, he was anxious. He was afraid that any guns sent up the north might be turned around and used against his own government in the Irish Republic. As historian Michael Heaney says about the money, Kelly wanted to assure himself that it would be used for defensive purposes, which is what Baileyborough was about. Baileyborough was not an IRA gathering to prepare for an attack on partition on the border. It was a gathering of members of the defence committees who overlapped significantly with the IRA. At the Baileyborough meeting, Captain Kelly had one very important objective, according to Belfast IRA man John Kelly. And that was to set up a command structure in the north. Which would be involved only in conflict within the six counties. Captain Kelly's other hope may have been that the meeting would be discreet, but that wasn't going to happen. For one thing, it took place in his hometown, where he was well known as an army officer. For another thing, the hotel was under surveillance from Gardaí. One story, though, from the night paints a clumsy Keystone Cops-type picture of the Garda surveillance. The story goes that one off-duty guard was having a drink or two in the hotel when he noticed a number of Northern IRA men arriving and being greeted by an Irish Army officer. Thinking that he had just stumbled across some dramatic information, the guard that got on the phone in the hotel reception area and much the worse for drink, shouted this secret news down the line to headquarters in Dublin. The truth is, as we know, the Garda Special Branch already knew about Captain Kelly's meeting. Although some of their reports were similarly overblown, like the one that Captain Kelly was throwing money around Baileyborough and buying drink for everyone, and focusing on the IRA being there, when some of those at the meeting were ordinary members of the defence committees with no connection to the IRA. When these reports reached civil servant Peter Berry in his hospital bed in Dublin, he then realised that Charles Hawhey had done nothing with the information he had given him. So this time he asked to meet the leader of the government, Taoiseach Jack Lynch. And Jack Lynch came to Peter Berry's bedside. Writing later, Peter Berry said he told Jack Lynch what he thought was happening. That his government and the Irish Army were playing a dangerous game dealing with subversives and that this could blow back in their faces. 
Jack Lynch then left the hospital. What would he do? Would he pull the plug on the subcommittee with £100,000? Would he cancel Captain Kelly's work with the defence committees? And what about the Northern Catholics' demand for guns? What was going to happen with that? And how do you buy illegal guns, anyway? All to come in episode four of Gunplot. The Irish government can no longer stand by and see innocent people injured and perhaps worse. This series is still in production, so if you have any insights, documents or tapes you'd like to share with us, please write to documentaries at rte.ie. That's documentaries at rte.ie. Gunplot was written, recorded and produced by Ronan Kelly and myself, Nicolene Greer. Sound by Damien Chanel. Production assistance from the Documentary and One team. And don't forget, there's a companion television documentary to this podcast, also titled Gunplot, and available on the RTE player. You've been listening to Gunplot, an RTE Documentary and One production. We live in trouble.